Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. Our show airs on the third Wednesday of every month at 8.30 p.m. And if you've missed it live, you can check out the podcast at cjsw.com. Joining us today on the program, we have Lisa DeNicolitz. Her novel, The Cult Persuasion and the Anarchist Solution, was one of the most entertaining books I personally have ever read. And later on in the program, we will be joined by Kieran Regeer. Her book, Cult Life, is a roller coaster ride, beautifully written. A push-me-pull-you chronicle of life inside an ashram of a poet seeking ultimately leaving a new religious movement. Originally from South Africa, Lisa de Nicolitz is an award-winning author whose work has appeared on recommended reading lists for both Open Book Toronto and the 49th Shelf, as well as being chosen for the Chatelaine Editor's Pick in Canadian Living Magazine Must Read. Some other titles you may recognize from de Nicolitz are West of Wawa, A Glittering Chaos, The Witch Doctor's Bones, Between the Cracks She Fell, The Nearly Girl, No Fury Like That, and Rotten Peaches. Lisa lives and writes in Toronto and is a member of the Sisters in Crime Toronto chapter, Sisters in Crime, Mesdames of Mayhem, and the International Thriller Writers. Lisa De Nicolas, thank you so much for joining us by phone from Toronto to talk to us here on Writers at Block about your latest novel, which came out uh, just ahead of the COVID-19 shutdown. And the novel is called The Occult Persuasion and the Anarchist Solution. Thank you very much for having me today, Dimsy. It's a great pleasure to be here. I have to tell you, I try not to gush on my show, but I have to gush about this because this novel, I think it may have been like in the ranks of life-saving when I (laughs) read it. Here in Calgary, we not only had uh, the the shutdown like everybody else, but it was also a really long, miserable, awful, dark, stinky winter. And it was just so much fun to dive into this book, uh, which is a page turner, a mind bender, so much fun, and yet also about so many deep and important things. And I don't think that a pandemic is a more perfect time to read this book. That is just wonderful to hear. I was when I received your message, I was so happy because as you mentioned, the book came out, you know, just before the COVID thing hit and I had all these um, you know, talks lined up and in fact I was gonna come to um to Calgary. Um and we had a whole little book tour lined up um with shelf life books and I was gonna do a talk at the library and there were all sorts of things lined up where I could meet and chat about the book and then none of that happened. So then when I got your message it was for me this massive ray of sunshine and I it just I was just so delighted that you enjoyed the book. So yeah, you totally made my day. I can't tell you. Oh that's that's wonderful. And um we have to get the word out about books one way or another, right? Yes. Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, I'm trying, uh, you know, during this time of pandemic to post 
um, interviews with other authors on Goodreads to try and showcase their books as well because I feel like you know a lot of my good friends are launching books right now and then they don't have the opportunities you know to to present their work so I'm trying to do a Goodreads blog and I have a review website as much as possible I try to share the love about other people's books because to me reading a book is the greatest joy and pleasure and isn't it it's like it's coming across you fall into another world that transports you. So I get great pleasure out of, you know, celebrating other writers' books. So because it is, it's, it's reading is for me the best thing in life. I agree with you. It's it's absolutely the best medicine and I could not I could not imagine having to go through life without story. Um, and and I think it's really hopeful and uh, so resilient that We've all found ways to keep talking about each other's stories and getting the books books in each other's hands, too. Um, I can tell you that, that the reader copy that I have has already gone through three people, and all of them loved it. And, and also that shelf life where you were going to have your um, book launch, I believe, they've also right through the, the closures due to the uh, to COVID-19, they have been getting books into people's hands and will continue to do so. Oh, so, that's wonderful. I didn't realize that. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah, safely, of course. Yes. Um, they've been doing deliveries, curbside pickup. And um, so if any of our listeners today uh, want to read The Occult Persuasion and the Anarchist Solution by Lisa DeNicholas, then Call your local independent bookstore because they're looking after us. Oh, that's that would be fantastic, Dimpy. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so usually we start uh, with with our writers giving us the listener a little bit of a snapshot of what this juicy, wonderful book is <laughs> all about. Well, the occult persuasion and the anarchist solution. And I have to say, when the title came to me, I was a little worried that the title, you know, with the word occult would actually put people off. But books that have come to me fully formed in a way. And so there it was, and I couldn't argue with it. The book is a story of hope. And uh, it's basically about this couple who reached a crossroads in their life and they go to on a trip to Australia. I My family's in Australia, so um, we go to Australia every two years to visit them. And the book started off, about, it came about by an idea because I lost my husband on a ferry. We were on a ferry and me, I'm so I'm such a daydreamer. So I... Um, I lost track of him. I was photographing something underneath the seat of a ferry and I missed the stop. Anyway, when I emerged, I thought he'd fallen overboard and I couldn't find him. And, and so, and then obviously he was fine. He got off at the stop he was supposed to. But then it was like this light bulb went off in my head. Pling. What about, you know, a married couple? What if the husband just ran away? Then it's like, but why would he run away? Because he's at a crossroads with his life. And I think that that, you know, for me, as I'm getting older, it's very important that for me to demonstrate to people of all ages, really, that the importance of dreams. Um, in my day job, I work for Hello Canada magazine. I'm the assistant art director. And I had to laugh the other day because we were putting together a feature on Prince Philip, who's turning 99. 
And Prince Philip was asked for his observations on aging. And his, his wry comment, his retort was, well, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. And I thought, you see, as we get older, it is life gets harder. It doesn't get easier. And so I really wanted to create a book um, that was an adventure, that gave people an, a renewed sense of dreams. Because in the book, the husband finds new dreams and things he wants to live for. And everybody comes across something that changes their life. And to me, that was really important because I want people to know, like, at any point in your life, um, if you're in a somewhat negative situation or maybe you're not that happy, things can change, that there's the potential for wonderful things to happen. So um, so that's the, the, the nugget of the book. And, you know, you mentioned that there's, you know, a lot of deeper issues. And to me, that's really important too because each of my books has a, a story and a plot line and characters that I just love to pieces. And then it also comes with some sociological deeper meaning, you know, um, between the cracks she fell was about homelessness. Um, all, each of each book has a different message. And to me, this one was about, you know, what are we doing to our world? What are we doing with all the garbage? And I, I've been deeply distressed by it. So um, the occult persuasion being uh, the, uh, the occult bruise, you know, being capitalism as the bruise on the body of the earth. And I was like, oh, my goodness, when that idea first came to me, I'm like, Lisa, how are you going to put that into a book that anybody is going to read? You know, capitalism is the occult bruise on the body of the earth because that came to me. And I'm like, again, well, now I have to try and figure out a way to put that into a story because that was my driving message. So um, in a long nutshell, that's, that's what the book is about. So I feel like it's a fable for our times. Yes. And, and to, but told in such a way that, you know, that is the power of the best story, isn't it? That you're, that it conveys such a deep and difficult message in a way that makes it feel like you're eating bonbons. Oh, so it seeps into your consciousness and you get it yeah. and it makes you, you know, thereafter you keep thinking about it. But the process of, of taking it in is not threatening. It's not, you know, it's not uh, overwhelming. It's just this rollicking good read about some messed up people at crossroads <laughs> who are doing the very best they can to figure out which way to go next. Simply, that's exactly it. They're doing the best they can. And I think as well, you know, so often in life, you know, I'll think to myself, you know, I'll second guess or I'll think maybe I should have done this or I should have done that. And very much as well, I'm trying to learn, you know, I've always done the best I could within a situation. And 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 very much, I also, as I said, the books and the stories come to me. And so for me, I try and also learn from them. I try and tr internalize the messages myself because I'm like, I really like what this book is telling me. And so, yeah, I'm trying to internalize that message myself. Yeah. To, to write your way into your own understanding. I think yes. that's, that's, yes. that's, that's, exactly that's it. so common, isn't it, for yes. writers of any genre, really? 
Exactly. Exactly. Yes, it's what is what's you know worrying you at the moment, or what are you preoccupied with, and then if you write it, you resolve something in your head, and then it becomes a clearer picture. I think as well, what I really enjoy about this book as well is that um, it was really good fun to write. You know, it's it writing it was. So such an enjoyable experience. So that was such a bonus too. You know, I, I had a really good time. Although I must admit at one point, maybe we can chat about that later. I felt like the evil nurse Nancy was actually grabbing <laughs> her head and saying, hey, I'm here. Because um, when I was writing the final scene, and um, I won't give too much away to the reader, but um, I looked down at my wrist and I felt something on my wrist and there was this you know, weird rash. And I'm like, that, oh my goodness, evil nurse Nancy is coming to get me. Anyway, because it was really this, you know, the, it was that pivotal scene where everything was happening. And so I just carried, I thought, well, anyway, don't worry about your wrist now, just carry on writing. So <laughs> I, I did that. And then it turned out to be shingles. But I'm still convinced that, oh, I don't know, maybe writing that, stream, that scene stressed me out so much that I got shingles, or maybe it was Nurse Nancy. I don't know. So, but, uh, but even that was fun to write. So, you know, I feel very much when I'm writing, like the characters are in, the, in a room with me. So I can, I can see them very, very clearly. So I felt her displeasure. I don't think I'd want to be in a in a room with evil nurse Nancy because she was formidable. <laughs> she was pretty <laughs> scary, wasn't she? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should, um, before we talk too much about Nancy, give yes. us, you know, the, one of the things that was really um, interesting for me as a reader was that the chapters alternate between points of view. And then there's an overlap of, yes. of who those characters, those two, you know, Margot, yes. the wife, who's been jilted and angry and trying to be a good mom still and stoically behave. And Lyndon, the husband, who didn't plan to just, you know, run away, slid off the ferry, <laughs> steal a car that has this magnificent cat in it, and uh, drive off into the Australian sunset. Um, and yet yes, he did. Yes. Then there's, so, so there's the wife, the husband, the cat, uh, the cat. their kids who factor yes. into it. And then there's the anarchist, the guru, Jason. Yes, Jason. Not to mention Jason. evil nurse Nancy. I love Jason too. Wasn't I love he Jason. Wonderful? Yes, he was so calming and reassuring. I loved that about him, and he was so funny. He was, and and also so. I mean, he he has this funny balance of being so earnest, and yes. yet his tongue was kind of planted firmly in his cheek at all times too. <laughs> <laughs> Which struck me as maybe that's the only way to actually do spirituality. Like, believe it, yes. but also take it with a grain of salt. It, it, 
Exactly. Like when they were doing yoga on the roof together and their conversations, I love those conversations so much. So, and just his way of approaching life. Again, like it was one of those things I thought if I, you know, could just think more along the lines of how Jason thought, I felt like life would be so much easier. So, yeah, I, I, I loved him very much too. And his teapot, I loved his teapot and his the little details of his, you know, how he, he liked his tea and his biscuits and things. And, you know, and then the anarchy, you know, and then the juxtaposition of the anarchy. I, I thought that was such fun, you know, that you had this sort of tea drinking, you know, guy and then he's an anarchist. So, you know, that, that was really fun. But even what we learn about anarchy or anarchy by Jason's definition, I suppose, puts anarchy on its head. Yes. In a wonderful way. You know, it makes you think about everything. Not just capitalist, capitalist brews, but also the things we think we understand about anarchy that aren't, aren't necessarily true. Exactly. And definitely, I, I put a lot of research into anarchy because, you know, when I was a teenager, I thought I was an anarchist. You know, I had the anarchy symbols, the one that's on the cover of the book. I, you know, had the T-shirts with that spray painted. I had the tartan trousers with the safety pins. And, you know, I, what, what, <laughs> I know. We must be, we must be similar in age because I did too. <laughs> Wasn't it? fun it was such fun and I think I also wanted to capture the, the fun of that time when you didn't really know what was going but you're like I'm an anarchist so then I'm like what is anarchy really and I think very much I just wanted to pre- like pre- present a different uh, point of view I just wanted to kind of say to to everyone and myself included like let's try and see the world differently so and i um i tracked down a, a, a guy who was the leader of the anarchist university of toronto and uh, i took him out for breakfast and um <laughs> poor guy i actually interrogated him because you know i tracked <laughs> him down and then i was like so i found him because like, i have to find a real life anarchist to speak to about this and then i kept trying to pinpoint him about yes but what are the practical how would anarchism work? And then he pointed me to the Ursula Le Guin book, and that was tremendous. That was such an eye-opener. So I think as well, like for the books, I um, I become a bit of a pain in the neck to a lot of people because <laughs> I'm like this little terrier that's like, if I want to know, yes, but what do you mean? What do you mean mm-hmm. exactly? Yeah, and I'll I'll hunt it down. So, so, this, so the search for the anarchy that is presented to the reader in the book came via a lot of reading and chatting and online research and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how it would work and would it work and, you know, just to present this alternative way of thinking, just to shake things up a bit. So, mm-hmm. and, and celebrate the fun we had when we were young, when we thought we were anarchists. So. Well, I, one of my questions was actually about the Ursula Le Guin book, which at, once once it was referenced in the book, which I also thought was so clever because it, I forget the word for a mirror in a mirror in a mirror, you know, that, yes. that thing that happens. But I felt like in a way there was an echo of that because, of course, for the group of anarchists that Jason leads, they have to, the first thing they have to do to join the group or to, to kind of gain his approval is read The Dispossessed. Yes. And I remembered reading it as a teenager. My dad, my father, 
loved it. And I was probably 13 or something and maybe got half of it. But I, I remember loving it. But it's funny how those things go in and out of your brain, you know? Yes, and, yes. And I thought, it is absolutely time to reread this book. No <laughs> wonder it's considered, you know, That's like crazy. the seminal text for Jason and his followers. Um, can I mention that Sean is one of my favorite characters? Sean and his relationship with flowers. Um, I just, that was really, I'm not even sure where, where that came from, but I thought he was just so funny and I, and I loved him to pieces. And I think as well what I liked about um, the book was that it showed the flawed human nature because everyone in it, their characters are so flawed. You know, at one point, you know, Lyndon was driving me mad at one point. And then, but it was so real what he was doing. And I think that was very interesting as well, um, you know, was to hang out with him at times when he was resisting Jason. And I'm like, come on, dude, get with the program. But he had to come around to things in his own time. So, you know, working with him like that was very interesting. Yeah, so human. And actually, Sean was was part of Lyndon's growth, wasn't he? Because yes. Sean, Sean makes love to flowers. Yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> and Lyndon has a really hard time wrapping his ass around <laughs> that car. Oh, he did. That's, uh, that's one of my favorite scenes in the book, I have to say. I, that's the one I, I, I generally read. You know, I include it with other readings, but I just love it so much that I read it because it just cracks me up every time. So, you know, <laughs> and as well, that's like the depth to his character. And I think that, and, you know, Apollo Bay I visited many, many years ago on one of my Australian trips. And just the name, Apollo Bay. So I really wanted to, you know, all this time I've been sort of carrying the seed of Apollo Bay with me. And so I was very, very happy to create this little world there. And that was also because um, part of this year I was supposed to go to um, a book festival in Australia. Um, it was called the Clunes Book Town Festival. And it's this tiny little town and, you know, every May 20,000 people descend on it. It's just outside of Melbourne. And so that was, you know, I was really excited about that. And I planned to go to Apollo Bay and take the book with me and then stand in that park and say, hey, Jason, thank you. And then because of COVID, I never got to do that. So um, so anyway, that was a bit sad. But what can you do? We, you know, COVID has affected everyone. So you just. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think we have to finish sentences with not right now, but yes. maybe not not never <laughs> no, exactly exactly because that's also part of keeping hope alive yes very very much so and i also think like you know sometimes um you know things were not meant to be i do have a level of acceptance you know if something you really hope for doesn't come along then uh, i would sort of i adapt quite quickly to go well all right then you know wasn't meant to be and then move on to the next thing it's like even if you're writing a story um, you know, because I really like, you know, your title, The Writer's Block. Like sometimes if, you know, I decide I want to write something and I go down a path and then I hit a dead end, you know, I think to myself, oh, well, you know, don't spin your wheels trying to make that work. Um, let something new come along. So I'm very, very much about that with regard to the writing process as well. You know, if something's not working out, don't kind of like keep 
bashing at it. Um, open your mind up to something else because a lot of times you'll start up writing something with a very clear vision of, I want it to be this, but then it isn't that. So, um, so I think, you know, very much sort of taking the adaptation of the COVID experience into other areas of life and into the writing life where it's like, okay, well, I can't do that now, so I'm going to do this and proving flexibility and adaptability, which I think we're all showing a lot. Yes, and I think that's the essence of resilience. Yes. Finding, finding a way forward, even if it wasn't the path that you had, yes, you know, assumed to take because you can't, you can't just stagnate. You have to figure it out. Exactly. And when the COVID sort of thing started, there was a moment where I was like, well, you know, do I just stop doing what I'm doing and wait it out? And then I thought, no, you're insane. (laughs) Why would you take away your greatest pleasure, you know, which is celebrating books and writing? No, you carry on. You find different ways. So, um, you know, but there was that sort of moment where it's like, do you let, because it was very scary, wasn't it, when things when it first became apparent what was happening and we all, the lockdown happened. And so um, I admit that, you know, my husband and I spent a little while watching disaster movies because we found it relieving. And so we, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so we got that out of our system. And then I'm like, okay, so now you have to pick up and carry on because you can't just sort of sit on the sofa and like wait out the entire pandemic. So, you know, Get on with things. Yeah. Which I, to, to go back to the story of the, or kind of the core of the story, which is this marriage meltdown, what you said about letting go and, and moving on and being accepting, that, that, seemed, that is the lesson in a way that the characters also came to, that you can't repress all of yourself and expect to still be content with one another. Very much so. And I think for me, what was revelationary was, you know, when Margot and Lyndon, you know, they they went their separate ways. And then, you know, Lyndon had this almost physical transformation. And I thought, you know, I really kind of, you know, like that as well, because it's kind of like, you know, as when you get older, you just sort of think, well, I'm going to, you, you go, you think, well, it is what it is. But then what happened with Lyndon is he kind of got reinvented into this cool cat. Um, kind of, you know, Margot could fall in love with all over again. And, and I thought that was very nice because sometimes, you know, with one's spouse, I mean, I was thinking, you know, what would I do if my husband suddenly, you know, decided to change his, well, not only his appearance, but what he was doing for a living. And I thought, you know, that's interesting because our immediate reaction as as humans is to, it's not safe, it's not the known. You know, I personally resist change a lot. So I wanted to internalize that too. Like, you know, be open to a relation, the people within my lives, if they do completely different things, to embracing those new aspects of them. So, yeah, I found that very interesting because you, you go into a relationship and you have a perception of who that person is going to become. And that's your perception. Uh, that's not them. So I wanted as well to include that element, you know, quite strongly that partners within a relationship 
should be able to change it up quite radically and then, you know, it'd be okay for the other person. Well, it kind of has to be because none of us is a static, yes, you know, where we change all the time. Yes. And that's what, yes. part of what makes it interesting. Exactly, exactly. I think I'm a person who fears change. So I think for me, yeah, that was a, kind of a big thing for me. You know, it's kind of, yeah, I can, I can, you know, if, if for example, if I, if I buy something new, even I have to let it sit in my closet for a while until it becomes somewhat old. So, and, and that actually translated into the book, like with Lyndon when he got those boots. You know, I, I, I personally was struggled that he was wearing them immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should save them for a bit. Then I'm like, no, Lisa, that's you. This is Lyndon. He's wearing the boots, you know. So, <laughs> and so as a writer, it's kind of funny the things you learn about yourself as you're going, and then you like push that to the back. This is not about you. This is about you know the character. So it's all the creative experience is such an interesting one. So it is, and and this book just. Um, dazzled with creativity and soul so oh, thank you so much for writing this book and and also for joining us today it's my absolute pleasure i i am just delighted that yeah it is that you everything that you've seen in the book was what i hoped readers would see so i can't thank you enough oh that's wonderful i'm so glad to hear that well i i have a back catalog of yours that i can't wait to read and um and uh, also, whatever you come up with next, it's been lovely oh. to get acquainted with your writing and and with you. Thank you, Dimsy. Yes, I have a new book coming out in um, in October, um, September, October, and it is speculative fiction. It's called The Rage Room, and it's very, very different because um, it has time travel. And I have to admit that writing time travel was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. And when I was going to come to Calgary, there's the Speculative Writers Fiction Writers Association. Sorry, I forget their name exactly. And mm -hmm. we were gonna, we were going to do a workshop together, um, you know, on self editing and all this sort of thing. So, um, so I'm very excited about the Rage Room. It's a, as I say, very different. Again, um, it has a actually a male protagonist um, at its core, and what he does is he's so we way in the future. We set way in the future where the entire world is plastic. Everything is grown in labs. It's you know it's 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 just a awful awful place and people are really angry they have so much anger so there's these government rooms uh, where you can go rage rooms to let out your anger uh, and then of course it becomes more complex than that because what happens is Sharps Barkley who's the protagonist he's not coping with life he wants to be the perfect husband and the perfect father and so and this is going to sound very dark um, on Christmas Eve, he murders his family because he wants to preserve that perfect hallmark moment because he just can't cope with everything that's going wrong. Then he regrets it, obviously, hugely, and then he gets in touch with these people who have a time travel device, and he comes back and tries to reset things, and he, he, comes, he jumps back, and every time he jumps back, um, he, he makes things so much worse. So that was super complicated to write because then I was like, you know, if we jump here, this is going to affect it here. And again, I'm going to sound really crazy, 
but it's a feel-good story. So I'm, I'm really excited about that one. And I'm still really hoping to get to come to Calgary. So, you know, we haven't actually ruled that out of the question. So we've just, you know, Shelf Life Books have kind of put me on the shelf, as it were, and hopefully, um, and the library as well. So hopefully we can even meet in person, which would be just amazing. That would be delightful. And yeah. your your new book sounds fantastic. When it's out, be sure that we get a copy and we'll, we'll oh, have you back thanks. on the show. That would be fantastic, Daphne. Thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank it's you. It's been a pleasure. Curing Her Gear holds an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of Victoria and was awarded the Victoria Medal for Fine Arts upon completion of her undergraduate degree. She enjoyed several years on the poetry board of the Malahat Review and has twice received grants from the Canada Council for the Arts. Her work has been published in literary journals and anthologies in Canada and the United States and Australia. She lives on Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Hearing Regeer, welcome to CJSW Writer's Block. We have you on today with your amazing book, Cult Life. You are going to be part of a poetry pop-up here uh, at the market, Hillhurst Market, that uh, Monica Kidd had organized. And in this strange new world that we all live in, that's, of course, cancelled. But I'm so grateful that you could join us from Victoria, from your home to my home here in Calgary. I'm wondering if we could start with um, this book I would describe as a, uh, perhaps, is it, am I allowed to say memoir in verse? Um, it is a journey that was just remarkable, sometimes uncomfortable, um, a journey of, of, self-discovery, perhaps. Tell us a little bit about how this book came to be. Wow. Well, um, yeah, you can call it a memoir, I guess. It's, um, it's also a narrative, and it has dramatic monologues, so it kind of, it's a bit of a genre blur, um, although it's classified as poetry, and it probably has more poetry in it than anything else. Um, and Cult Life is set 20 years ago in an ashram, uh, a, few hours, a few hours out of Chicago. I was in my late 20s, with a three-year-old child and this deep desire for enlightenment, uh, which was undermined by, I guess, a bed-hopping search for worldly love. <laughs> and <laughs> so the book is an, it's a loose narrative. Um, I, sometimes I've called it a book-length poem, but it's got characters from the ashram speaking in their own voices and the words of the questionable guru distilled into poems and this quasi-me-making foolish choices and looking at herself and her motherhood, I, I hope unflinchingly. Um, it, became, it began as my um, thesis, my MFA, actually, back in 2013. So it's been a long haul. Um, who is it that says, I think it's T.S. Eliot, he says, uh, the, more, the more perfect the artist, the more completely separate in them is the person who suffers in the mind which creates. Mm-hmm. Um, so me not being very perfect, the suffering and the poetry in me took a long time to sufficiently separate in order to write a book. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's been about eight years in the making, I guess. Well, it's a, it, it's a, the the results are very powerful, and you use the word unflinching. I think as a reader, um, I would describe it as unflinching and unbelievably honest. 
sometimes it made me flinch to, to think of the vulnerability of that time of your life. It's almost like shock jock kind of title, right? Cult life. Yeah. When you see that on the shelf, you think, whoa, what could that be about? And yet, the cursory look at it, it doesn't say, oh, this is the, you know, this is a narrative in verse that takes you on a journey through one. It, it really doesn't. And then you have to get all the way through the end thinking, it, did this happen? How did it happen? <laughs> like, it, it's almost like a thriller in verse. <laughs> and then at the end, and at the end, I was like, oh, thank God she got out. And, <laughs> oh, wow, she was so there is so much grace about looking back on yourself, but also the characters. I mean, obviously some of them are people who were trying really hard to do, to, to do the same thing, seek enlightenment. But there's also really a lot of people who you wouldn't want to be in such close quarters with. No, <laughs> it was such a mixed bag of people. Uh, I mean, you know, they were, they were real-life sociopaths and... And there were also some amazing artists. Tell us a little bit about what the ashram was like. You described different facets of it that seemed to be a bit of a dichotomy. But the restaurant, for example, compared to the grounds, that kind of thing. Yeah, it was a, a really, um, really strange place because it was originally a, um, a, a resort uh, I believe run by mafia in the 1920s and it was a place where they, um, you know, rum, was it rum rum? Is that what they called it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, during Prohibition, it had all these strange um, secret passageways and false walls and stuff. Um, and it was kind of dilapidated and falling down because it was quite old and... Uh, there, I guess, there were maybe 300 people uh, sort of coming and going. There were always new people coming in and some people leaving. And uh, sister ashrams around the world, um, one in Australia, which is where I came in, uh, Germany and Poland and South America, um, one in England for a while, the Netherlands, was uh, kind of seeding the main ashram with people. And... I guess the activities there were just so wildly uh, varied because there was a restaurant that everyone worked at, a vegetarian restaurant, and there was open to the public. <laughs> and uh, and these these uh, light sessions or these these meditations every day, sat sayings of the master, where you um, heard him wax lyrical in his um, own peculiar way, and I. Uh, a lot of people lived on site. Um, I lived in an old hotel room with my child. I, a lot of people lived in houses and um, rental properties around the place. So it wasn't really cultish in that respect, you know, because people were coming and going. No one was made to stay anywhere. There was no fence. But there was a psychological kind of... There was a psychological fence. Yeah. Sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was called the teaching. <laughs> and, but you know, there's a psychological fence around every world religion too. 
Yes, absolutely. I was thinking about that, how there are echoes in any religion that you can think of. Yes, most definitely. Uh, and I guess the appeal here is that um, the, the questionable guru claimed enlightenment. And so those of us who wanted to meet somebody who was enlightened or wanted to, to speak to somebody who wanted to learn from somebody who was enlightened uh, went there hoping for a truth. And, I mean, I was very young, you know, I got, I got seduced by um, this quasi-Eastern strange philosophy and also by the people. There were so many artists and performers and, like, really interesting people. <laughs> so, so, so some of that complexity you, you hint at, I felt as a reader that at the beginning of the book, there was an innocence. So I kept turning pages, trying to figure it out, full of this light and hope and and all these expectations. And then as the narrative continues, you grow to be a little bit more jaded and a little bit more worried. <laughs> and there was a distance from this time of your life by the time that you started to write it. Yes. Yeah. But it took more distance after that as well. Um, when, I first, when I wrote the first poem, um, I was looking for thesis. So I was looking for something that I could write a, a lot about. And, um, and I was finding, I was just coming up against all these dead ends. And Lorna Crozier was my um, thesis advisor. And yeah, there, there was nothing that was coming, that was, that, there was, that was satisfying or saying, you know, this is it. And then I was sitting in a coffee shop and um, I started writing this poem I t entitled The Guru's Feet. And it just flowed out. And all of a sudden I was, yeah, reliving a portion of that time and or, or, or a moment in that time. And um, I showed it to Lorna and she said, this is it. Hmm. And it, it opened the floodgates. I didn't stop writing. I just so so many poems didn't make it into the book. Hundreds of poems were written, and uh, a lot of them we just cross out and go nope. <laughs> but, uh, but eventually, um, you know, it sort of took took shape. But it wasn't um, until a few years later that I started to really craft it into a narrative and really think about. Um, you know, just like a, like a fiction writer, you know, rate of re revelation and uh, recurring character and and characters and trying to figure out um, how to build tension and you know the, the sort of fiction tools that I was taught in university as well and I uh, and a lot of other poems came and a lot more were discarded. It, it was a really long process to try and find. Um, the real shape of the book, and uh, yeah, it, it kind of grew as I became more detached from it, and as I processed, because I did a lot of processing with the the first outpouring, um, and you know, I, had, I still had resentments, and I still had uh, regrets, and and all that sort of stuff, and so once I sort of sorted myself out emotionally. And and moved past it all. Um, I could see it more clearly, and 
I didn't house any any ill feelings, and then I, then I was able to really write. Karen Regeer, you're you're launching a book in 2020, right at the time where we're all <laughs> ending up isolated, and some of the the most common ways of getting your book noticed are not available to you. So. How how is that? And what what other clever ways are you trying to get the word out about this book? Yeah, it was definitely a strange time. I I was very lucky in that I launched my book before we all um, had to isolate in Canada. Um, I had a really wonderful launch at Monroe's Books in Victoria, which was my dream launch pad. And oh yes, what a wonderful place! Oh, just incredible, such a historic store and. And it was packed. The place was packed. And it was it was wonderful. We almost sold out of books and it was a, like a night it was night to remember. I wouldn't have done anything differently and so I'm very, very grateful for that. Uh, National Poetry Month is obviously really fabulous because people are focused on poetry and uh, Cult Life will be featured on All Lit Up on April April ninth. I think they have all the books of the featured poets discounted too. And, oh, perfect. Yeah. Uh, Cult Life is part of Susan Gillis' online poetry party, which she created for readings that are cancelled due to COVID. Uh, and they're all, all on her blog, uh, Concrete and River. Concrete and River. Concrete and River, okay. I believe it's on her blog, and she's basically created uh, the poetry party in order to support readings that were cancelled. Um, I mean, we're lucky we have so many ways to stay connected, don't we? Let me ask you this. What haven't we touched on that you would like to talk about that's important to you about this book? I think what's important about the book is that it hasn't really been written about in this form. You know, mm. it's... it's uh, there are so many things about cults, right? And... Yet there's really nothing about cults in poetry, so so that's I think adding something new. When I was uh, editing the book, I I really um I really put everything into it, and um, I did so many more edits than than I think everybody thought that I would. And the question was asked like, why? It's already it's it's good enough to publish. You can publish it now. I'm like, no, because there are so many books. There are so many books in the world. So unless it's something, like the, the best thing that I can make at this point in time, unless it's really um, something different, something new, I don't, I don't want to publish it. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, art is a record keeper. It's a real historian uh, because it captures the zeitgeist. And, and yet there are these pockets of culture and and humanity that don't really get seen because they're underground and strange and fringy. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm capturing one of the fringy pieces and popping it into the poetry zeitgeist. <laughs> <laughs> well, well and, and yes, there are a lot of things about cult, but I also reflected when I got to the end that this is not a sensationalist you know, story of cult. It's very respectful. It's very truthful, and sometimes the truths are hard to look at. But there is also a great deal of of respect and kindness toward 
what was going on there and what, why people were there, why you yourself, you know, went, took yourself on this journey. It's not sensationalist or glorifying or damning, which I think is really important that history, that history comes out with, in all its facets instead of just one take on it. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing. Elliot has really been in my mind while I've been writing this. That one quote really stuck with me. I almost put it in the book, but obviously it didn't really fit. But, you know, that, that it really, there has to be this distance between life experience and the making of that life experience into art or else it still carries all of the, you know, all the human crap that we attach to our experiences. And so, you know, the, the distance um, lets us, you know, shape it, shape the experience in, in a way that, um, can be digested by others without um, tasting bad, you know? Mm-hmm. What a beautiful way to say it. Perhaps you could give us a taste of what's in between the covers of Colour. <laughs> I'll just do a short one because I know we don't have a lot of time. Uh, this one was um, included in one of the best Canadian poetry anthologies. Mm. Close Encounters. Three stories, three long halls, 23 doors on every floor, keys swinging in the locks. The tub upstairs overflows, gutters down my bathroom walls. I wrap the phone cord round my toes, doodle flowers next to four names on the phone list. Where have all the virtues gone? Young girls came, picked every one. I drag my headboard into the foyer, slap it against two other abandoned headboards. Noisy things. A door slams and someone screams, You promised to be celibate with me. The master says, Anger is a call for love. Jealousy is a call for love. Guilt is a call for love. Skin squeaks on the porcelain tub next door. Someone sobs down the hall a kettle boils that's so shivery (laughs) that's a good one thank you would you like to give us another poem okay thank you (laughs) am the new shiny handbag plume in the fedora two door with a high gloss finish Show for me round by the elbow, watch my hips swing, get sprung, and your spaniel watch me come by myself, watch me lie the length of your tub, watch me stir your Dutch coffee, liquor, watch me slurp. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I like the little Anne poems. They're like little yeah. breaks for me as well. <laughs> Big, chunky ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us virtually with your beautiful book called Life. I think it's um, an important topic to add to the, the canon. Thank you so much, Dimsony. I'm really grateful for um, you taking our little pop-up reading and and putting it on on the airwaves it's fabulous thank you thank you so much for joining us
Writer's Block would like to send its celebrations to the winners of the 2020 Alberta Literary Awards. For writers in Alberta, the Literary Awards Gala is one of our favorite nights of the year, and because of the pandemic, we could only celebrate it virtually this year. Thank you to the Writers Guild of Alberta for making it available on the Facebook page and on its YouTube channel. The Writers Guild of Alberta is pleased to announce the winners of the 2020 Alberta Literary Awards and the Robert Croach City of Edmonton Book Prize. They are thrilled to name the recipient of the 2020 Golden Pen Award for Lifetime Achievement. This year's award winners were announced in an online video release on June 4th. The video is available on the Writers Guild of Alberta Facebook page and YouTube channel. This celebration marked the 38th anniversary of the Alberta Literary Awards and brought together writers from across Alberta. The Alberta Literary Awards were created by the Writers Guild of Alberta in 1982 to recognize excellence in writing by Alberta authors. This year, jurors deliberated over 220 submissions to select winners in the following eight categories. The Writers Guild of Alberta is the largest provincial writers organization in Canada and was formed in 1980 to provide a meeting ground and collective voice for the writers of the province. The Guild's mission is to inspire, connect, support, encourage and promote writers and writing, to safeguard the freedom to write and read, and to advocate for the well-being of writers. The winner of the 2020 Alberta Literary Awards are the R. Ross Annette Award for Children's Literature, sponsored by the Under the Arch Youth Foundation at the Calgary Foundation. Sue Farrell-Holler from Grand Prairie for her book, Cold White Sun, published by Groundwork Books. The Georges Bounier Award for Fiction. Richard Van Camp from Edmonton for Moccasin Square Gardens, published by Douglas and McIntyre. The Wilford Eggleston Award for Nonfiction, Naomi K. Lewis from Calgary for her memoir, Tiny Lights for Travelers, published by the University of Alberta Press. The Gwen Ferris Ringwood Award for Drama, sponsored by Alberta Views. Tara Began from Calgary for Honor Beat, J. Gordon Schillingford Publishing. The Stephen G. Stephenson Award for Poetry, sponsored by Stephen V. Benedictson. Billy Ray Belcourt from Edmonton for Endian Coping Mechanisms, published by House of Anansi. The James H. Gray Award for Short Nonfiction, Paolo da Costa from Calgary for Learning to Shave, Learning to Leave, published in The Fiddlehead. The Howard O'Hagan Award for Short Story, sponsored by the Alexandra Writer Center Society. Allie Bryan from Calgary for The Big Man in Cargo Shorts, published in Alberta Views. And finally, the John White Memorial Essay Award, sponsored by the Writers Guild of Alberta Board of Directors, goes to Julie Sedevi from Calgary for telescoping. The 2020 Golden Pen Award for Lifetime Achievement goes to Calgary's very own Vivian Hansen, who has been a mentor and an inspiration to many of us over the years. So congratulations, Vivian.
And congratulations to all of these fine writers for the story that they bring to the readers in our province. Thanks for listening to CJSW Writer's Block on 90.9 FM. And remember that you can find all of our shows on our website at cjsw.com. This is Dimphony Dronic, your host, signing off, hoping you'll join us next month for more writerly goodness. And closing the show for us tonight on Writer's Block, our local Calgary band, Landos, with their song, Lonely Afternoon. This is Cody Dronic, signing off. <laughs>